Proverbs 10.22. Well, I know some of you have heard about this before, but uh, my family ended up in the Dayton area originally in an effort to escape a, a life of poverty in rural Appalachia. My grandfather and grandmother came here in search of an improved quality of life. And uh, my, my grandfather, he, he grew up in the holler, as they call it, in Johnson County, Kentucky. Uh, he was one of 11 children, uh, the one of, uh, died young. The 12 living members of his family lived in a three-room house just off a dirt road outside of Paintsville. And just to be clear, that's not three bedrooms, that's three rooms total. Uh, they didn't have running water. Uh, my great-grandmother prepared the family's three meals a day when they had them on a wood-burning stove. She'd devote her whole day to simply preparing and cleaning up meals. Uh, my grandfather, after finishing his sixth grade education, decided to drop out of school and leave as a young teenager. His home life wasn't good. His father was uh, a harsh and an abusive man. But my grandfather ended up working at a feed shop that his older brother had started. And, and uh, this is where he was introduced to the Bible and his church. And uh, people have told me that you could often have found my grandfather on his lunch break hiding among bags of feed, hidden away with his Bible during lunch break. He'd take every chance he could to, to spend time in the Word. Well, after he and my grandmother got married at ages 18 and 17, they came to Dayton, Ohio in search of a job at GM. They came with, with all they had, uh, which all fit in a small suitcase and in my grandmother's piggy bank. They were dirt poor. And they came here in search of a better life, not just for themselves, but for their children and for their grandchildren and for their great-grandchildren. And I have to say, I think they found it. I'm going to tell you something that is not at all nor a normally acceptable thing to say in church, but if you'll allow me to kind of transgress cultural norms for just a moment, my family is now lavishly wealthy. We are lavishly wealthy. And I don't say that to brag, it's just a fact. I know not everyone, if they looked at our lifestyle or, or our income, would call us rich, but I would. And this is why. We live in a nine-room, three-bedroom house in our household. I drove a car here that I own. And my grandparents didn't have a car for the longest time. Uh, in our house, not only do we have running water, we have this amazing machine that all you have to do is put dishes in it and it washes your dishes for you. It's incredible. We have this other machine that puts ice and ice cold water right into your cup. That same machine keeps our food cold for us. And sometimes, listen to this, sometimes after we go to the grocery store, we have trouble fitting all of our food into it. This past week, we had to have a night where we ate leftovers because we had such an abundance of food from the week before. It's, I, it's, sometimes I have to restrain how much I eat for the purpose of fitness and health. So few people in human history have ever had that problem. Most, I, I, we, we have... Another thing, we have this little dial in our house. You'll find this amazing. We have this little dial in our house, and with it, we can set the exact temperature in our home. We are lavishly 
lavishly wealthy. Not, not only do we not, not only do we have more clothes than would fit in a small suitcase, we have two closets in my bedroom. And sometimes there are articles of clothing in there that I forget that I have. It's really amazing. I have a James Bond quality computer in my pocket right now. Really. We, I am lavishly wealthy. Now, that might not sound like the luxuries of the filthy rich to you, but by any historical standard, by any global standard, by any sane standard, anyone who enjoys luxuries such as those is actually lavishly wealthy. And I know I could give a dozen caveats to, to that statement, but it's just a fact that compared to almost all human beings throughout history and most dwellers on the earth today, many of us, in all reality, are material speaking, very wealthy. We might not think that we're rich because it all seems fairly normal to us and we're used to it. We might not think that we're rich because we're constantly being berated by advertisements that are intended to make us feel discontent. We might not feel that we're rich because we often think of rich people as just those who have more money than us. But by any sane standard, any historical standard, by any global standard, most of us are indeed rich. Now here's the question, what do we do with that? Should we feel guilty about that? Some might say that we should. Should my grandparents not have desired and sought a better life for them and for their, their barren and their descendants? Were, were they wrong to do that? Should all of us sell everything we have and give to the poor and go into ministry or into missions? I think probably some of us should do that. But you'd be hard-pressed to show that all of us are biblically required to do that. Should we not just give should, should we just not give a second's thought to all of this and live high in the hog and keep up with the Joneses and give ourselves to little or no reflection about what to do with our riches or even more importantly, what they might be doing to us? Should we just live a life of zero self-reflection in this matter? Well, this morning and next Sunday, we're going to look at the what I want to call the multi-perspectival wisdom of the book of Proverbs on the subject of riches. It has a lot of varying things to say about the subject of worldly wealth. It has a lot of things for all of us and for each of us when it comes to the subject of worldly wealth. And if we want to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, as well as one that's beneficial to ourselves and to our neighbors, we would do well to listen to the word of God. And if we do listen, what we hear might be surprising to us in some respect. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God, Proverbs 10, 22, and then we'll pray together. Hear now the word of the Lord. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do pray and ask for your wisdom, for your spirit to guide us into your wisdom this morning. Give us the spirit, as Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, of the, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Enlighten the eyes of our understanding so that we might walk according to the wisdom of your word and not according to human wisdom only. We pray Father, that you would equip us 
with the truth of your word so that we might be ready to do every good work, so that we might be ready to bless one another in this world that you have placed us in and so that we might ultimately in all things exalt you above all because you are the glorious one, you are the excellent one, you are the one to be treasured above all. So help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, we're in our 19th Sunday in the book of Proverbs, and we began this past spring by walking slowly through the prologue of Proverbs, chapters 1 to 9, where Solomon was preaching to his sons and calling them to fear God and choose a life of wisdom uh, and walking in God's ways and and thereby to, to live a life that shuns folly and wickedness in the world. But then after chapter 9, we, we uh, came to Proverbs 10, and, and after Proverbs 9, Proverbs takes a bit more of a, a proverbial approach. It's filled with these short, pithy sayings of, of wisdom. And among these Proverbs, it, there's often not a clear connection between a single proverb and those immediately surrounding it. And so for this summer, we're taking this this portion of Proverbs more theme by theme rather than verse by verse. And, and our theme this morning obviously brings us to the issue of money, finances, wealth. And we're going to spend the next two Sundays considering this subject, this subject of worldly wealth. Over the next two Sundays, we're going to consider six points in total, all related to what Proverbs has to say about wealth and finances, three this week, three next week. The next Sunday, we're going to look at Three points that speak to the, to the warnings and the dangers that Proverbs uh, would give us in relation to worldly wealth. But the first three we're looking at this morning will speak to what Proverbs has to say regarding the more positive aspects of wealth. It might surprise some of us to hear that Proverbs does uh, often take a more positive view uh, concerning the possession and pursuit of worldly wealth. This morning, you're going to hear... Um, you're going to hear positive things about possessing and pursuing worldly wealth. And it might make you a little uncomfortable. Lord knows, I feel a little uncomfortable saying some of the things that I'm about to tell you. But in our endeavor to preach the, the whole counsel of God and to explore all that the Bible has to say about our lives, this is something we're just going to explore. And uh, don't worry if, if what we talk about this morning seems overly positive about worldly wealth to you. Rest assured, next Sunday, Proverbs will challenge, uh, offer a challenge to the materialists in our midst. But this morning, Proverbs is going to offer a challenge to the, to the you know, so-called ascetics in our midst. And so as we've been doing, uh, we'll kind of camp ourselves in an individual proverb. This morning, our home will be uh, Proverbs 10.22, even as we visit and explore more of what the book has to say on, on the whole about the matter. And Lord willing, after the next two Sundays, we're going to grow in possessing a well-balanced and wise position regarding the use of money in our lives as Christians. But, but to begin with, look at me this morning at the distribution, the devices, and the delight of wealth. First, the distribution of wealth, which is a little cheeky. I admit, but uh, here we see that ultimately speaking, God is the distributor of worldly wealth to his creatures. God is the distributor. Proverbs 10.22 says that the blessing of the Lord makes rich. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. Now, some of us are already squirming in our seats, right? 
That is uncomfortable for us. And, and part of the reason that's uncomfortable for a church like ours is because we're sensitive to the abuses of prosperity theology and the prosperity gospel. Prosperity theology, of course, being that movement among certain Western church groups that claims that God intends for his people to be healthy and wealthy and not suffer, that believers can transcend illness and poverty through personal devotion to God, that, that if, if you give God enough devotion and enough faith, he will reward you with health and wealth. And let's just call that what it is for a moment. That is a damaging and damning heresy. That, that is a God nowhere promises his new covenant people that they will be rich and never suffer. That's a lie, and it's a damaging and a damnable lie at that, if believed. And in fact, we should just be really clear about the fact that in God's providence, Christians sometimes experience the opposite of health and wealth precisely because they're Christians. In some places in the world, instead of wealth, Christians get fired from their jobs or sent to prison. And, and that's because they're Christians. In some places in the world, people, instead of experiencing health, they get beaten, they get beheaded. We have to be very clear that whether health or death comes our way, whether riches or poverty, Jesus is still worth following with everything that we are. Jesus is worth following not because we can get material things from him. Jesus is worth following because he is the matchless and magnificent sovereign of the universe who gave himself on a cross to redeem us and rescue us from sin and hell. That's why Jesus is worth following. And that's why we deny and abhor the prosperity gospel because it makes Jesus a means to another end. It makes Jesus a means to the end to get riches when Jesus is vastly superior to any and all riches in this universe. That's why we hate the prosperity gospel. However, although we do condemn the prosperity gospel and call it what it is, we should also then not fall into the opposite extreme concerning wealth and worldly enjoyments which some Christians do by wrongly thinking that being materially wealthy and enjoying good things in life is automatically wrong or sinful or evil, that's the error of asceticism. Ascetics tend to think that a life of poverty and abstaining from worldly pleasures is, is more spiritual, is more godly. We have to ask ourselves, is that the biblical view? Is, is that the actual Christian position? And, and the answer would be no. Of course, while the Bible never promises worldly wealth to saints, it's never promised. At the same time, most or some of the most admirable saints in Scripture also had an abundance of worldly wealth. We might think of Job, Abraham, David, Solomon, the, the author of our proverb this morning, when I think of Joseph of Arimathea, all of whom were abundantly wealthy and were still godly, admirable saints, praised by the writers of Holy Scripture, praised as admirable saints in the inspired word of God. Of 1 Timothy 6, James 1, both speak to uh, the rich, giving warnings and instruction for, for wealthy church members, which of course shows us that there are dangers associated with being wealthy. And we're going to talk about those next week. But those passages also show us that there were indeed wealthy Christians present 
in the churches in the first century there. And so indeed, while we ought never believe the lie that God promises his beloved children great wealth as a result of their belonging to him, at the same time, we ought also not wrongly think that being wealthy is necessarily sinful and that poverty and lack is somehow more godly. And in fact, it seems that our verse this morning would go a step further and say this, that wealth is actually a good blessing and it's one bestowed upon some by the hand of God. In, in, in this verse, God is, is shown forth to be the almighty one, the sovereign one, the, the one who providentially upholds and orders all of creation, which includes all the people within it and their financial lot in this world. And again, while the Lord doesn't promise wealth to everyone, he doesn't promise it to his elect. Riches are not a sign of God's saving grace. Poverty is not a sign of God's displeasure. Riches are not a sign of superiority among those who possess them. Poverty is not a sign of diminished worth. Right? Proverbs 22, uh, Proverbs 22 2 would remind us that the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. He's the maker of all. But with all that being said, riches are a common grace blessing that the Lord in his infinitely wise choosing does bestow upon some people in this world. 1 Samuel 2.7 would confirm this. And Hannah there is praying in praise of the Lord. She says, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Who is it that does it? It's the Lord. He's the sovereign one, she says. It's a result of his magnificent and perfectly wise providence. Deuteronomy 8.17 and 18 would remind us much the same. When Israel was about to go into the promised land and enjoy the abundance of it, the Lord warns them and tells them, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Right? And there's a, there's a certain covenantal context to that. But there's also a general principle that would tell us that everyone's financial lot in life is indeed related to God's sovereign oversight of our lives. In other words, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. John Gill, that great 18th century Reformed Baptist preacher, he summed it up very well when commenting on this verse. He wrote that riches are from the Lord and should be acknowledged as such and not attributed to the industry, diligence, sagacity, and merit of men, but should be looked upon as had through the blessing of the Lord upon the labors of men. And when they come this way, they come as a blessing. Riches can be helpful, he says. They can be a beneficial blessing, and they come from the hand of the Lord. He's the distributor. And so here's a very simple application from this truth. If you're experiencing an abundance of God's provision, which many of us are, living where we live, enjoy it and give thanks for it. Enjoy it and give thanks. I, I know I'm expected to say steward it well, and you should, and I will say that. I know I should say, be generous with it, give it to missions, to the poor, to the church, and I will say those things later and next Sunday. But for now, here's a biblical God-honoring thing you can do with God's provision in your life. Enjoy it and give thanks for it, right? First Timothy 6, 17. Paul's instructing Timothy for how to pastor rich people in his congregation. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, 
who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Right? There's multiple duties there. Don't, don't be arrogant. Don't tell the rich, don't be arrogant. Don't be prideful. Don't put your hope in the, the uncertainty of riches. They're not a sure thing. But there's a duty as well to simply enjoy them. Why does Paul say God richly provides for us? So that we might enjoy what he has given. 1 Timothy 4.4 instructs us in our use of material goods, again, saying, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. The things you enjoy, they're, they're good and worth giving thanks to God for, Paul says. So I wonder if you've ever considered that the Bible as a whole takes a uniquely positive view of created things. When when compared to many other worldviews, the Bible takes a uniquely positive view of created things. Think about God in Genesis 1, right? He's the one who created the, the cosmos and all of the material things within it. And what's the refrain we see over and over when God creates and then steps back to observe what he's created? And God saw that it was good. He saw that it was Everything created by God is good. He provides us richly with everything to enjoy. Nothing's to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Enjoy it and give thanks for it. I love how Wendell Berry speaks to this in his book, Jaber Crow. You ever want to read a book that just exalts in the goodness of created things? Read a book by Wendell Berry. A man's a walking celebration. But I love this passage in Jaber Crow where he talks about the irony of those creation-hating doctrine, that the, the creation-hating doctrine among Christians in this town. He says this, he says, In Port William, more than any place else I had been, this religion that scorned the beauty and goodness of the world was a puzzle to me. To begin with, I don't think anybody believed it. I still don't think so. Those world-condemning sermons were preached to people who on Sunday mornings would be wearing their prettiest clothes. Even the old widows in their dark dresses would be pleasing to look at. By dressing up on the one day when most of them had leisure to do it, they had signified their wish to present themselves to one another and to heaven looking their best. The people who heard those sermons loved good crops, good gardens, good livestock and work animals and dogs. They loved flowers and the shade of trees and laughter and music. Some of them could make you a fair speech on the pleasures of a good drink of water or a patch of wild raspberries. While the wickedness of the flesh was preached from the pulpit, the young husbands and wives and the courting couple sat thigh to thigh full of yearning and joy, and the old people thought of the beauty of the children. And when church was over, they would go home to heavenly dinners of fried chicken, it might be, and creamed new potatoes and hot biscuits and butter, and cherry pie, and sweet milk, and buttermilk, and the preacher and his family would always be invited to eat with somebody, and they would always go, and the preacher, having just forsworn on behalf of everybody the joys of the flesh, would eat with unconsecrated relish. I plan on eating with unconsecrated relish after service this morning. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. It's right and fitting and good for us to enjoy the abundant goodness of God's world and to also then turn and give thanks to him for it. The wisdom of Proverbs would have us humbly receive 
life's enjoyments as well as have, have us turn and give thanks to the author of them. That's the wisdom concerning the distribution of wealth. But the next look with me at wisdom concerning the devices of wealth. The last point was uncomfortable. This is going to be even more so because I know some of you are certainly thinking right now, this is, is this really all that simple, right? That, that wealth comes from the Lord, full stop. If God wills for us to be wealthy, wealth just descends from heaven, falls into our laps, and, and that's that. And, and of course, that's certainly not the case. God and his sovereignty and providence is the first and primary cause of all of our lot in life, but the Bible would also speak about secondary and tertiary causes. It would speak of means and instruments and devices through which God works in the world, including his work of providing for us in this life. And Proverbs in the Bible as a whole is extremely clear about this. For example, earlier in Proverbs 10, this very same chapter of our text, in Proverbs 10.4, Solomon writes, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And you just read that and you go, is, is it the blessing of the Lord that makes rich? Or is it the hand of the diligent? And Solomon would look right back at you and just go, yes, yes. And I think one of the things we pray for in the Lord's Prayer actually illustrates this. You think about it, the Lord's Prayer. We ask our Father to provide our daily bread for us. And when we receive food on our tables, we give thanks to him as having answered that prayer. But I don't know if you've ever stopped to think maybe about all of the various means and devices and instruments and secondary and tertiary causes that go into the provision of our daily bread. How that bread gets into, onto your table and into your belly is astoundingly complex. Of course, ordinarily there's uh, your income through which the bread comes which God provided for you in the first place, which of course you depended upon your employer to get and and you depended on them to exist or hire you in the first place. And then there's an accountant often somewhere who goes to the trouble every few weeks or so in order to put money in your hands for the work you did. And then moreover, that daily bread doesn't just appear out of nowhere. There's There's a farmer who grows wheat somewhere And then there's a manufacturer somewhere else who built a combine so that that wheat could be harvested. And then there's, there are these truck drivers that transport wheat to where they're going. And and then there's bakers who bake the bread. And and then there's grocers who put the bread on shelves and sell it to you at the grocery store. And we could go on and on here. There's so many various means and instruments and devices through which God works to put bread on your table and into your belly. And just so there are many means and instruments and devices through which God works works to bestow wealth upon us as individuals and families. And the wisdom of Proverbs would also tell us that some of those, it would tell us what some of those means and devices actually are. In other words, Proverbs, in Proverbs, it might be uncomfortable to think about, but it's just assumed that pursuing worldly wealth is something of a worthy endeavor in life. And I know we've got to be careful here. Because wealth is certainly not the most important thing in life, and it can actually be a very dangerous thing in life, and we'll speak of that next week. But this morning, we're we're considering the goodness of financial abundance and what Proverbs would have to tell us about that, and Proverbs would agree with the counsel of John Wesley on this. John Wesley, he once preached a a sermon, and his three points were this, earn all you can, 
save all you can, give all you can, earn all you can. Not because wealth is an ultimate thing, it's not, but it is a good thing. It's a good thing because you can do good things with it. And Thomas Aquinas would call wealth, uh, he would call it an instrumental good. It's, it's good, at least in part, because we're able to do good things with it. And hopefully that's just obvious, right? Without wealth, in some measure, we wouldn't have what we need in life. Without it, we wouldn't be able to give to others who are in need. Without wealth, we wouldn't be able to support missionaries. Without wealth, our church wouldn't be able to be in this building. We wouldn't be able to support staff. We wouldn't be able to support the ministry of the word. And we can go on and on. All of that depends on us acquiring wealth in the first place. And the more we acquire, the more we can give and save and steward well to the glory of God. And so, by all means, as John Wesley would tell you, and I think Proverbs 2, earn all you can. But Proverbs also wants to tell you that while the blessing of wealth ultimately comes from the hand of God, there are several means or instruments or devices through which the Lord ordinarily supplies it. Which as we've already seen, first off, Proverbs would tell us that working hard is one of those means. Again, Proverbs 10.4, slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Puritan Matthew Henry commented on this passage saying, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, but that blessing is ordinarily upon the hand of the diligent. It doesn't mean that people who aren't rich don't work hard. It doesn't mean that working hard is a guarantee of acquiring wealth. But ordinarily speaking, people don't usually acquire it unless they work hard. Ordinarily, if we want to earn all we can, save all we can, give all we can, we must be willing to work hard. In addition to working hard, we might also add that pursuing excellence is one of those means. Proverbs 22, 29. Do you see a skillful man in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. It doesn't necessarily say that person who's excellent in their work will acquire wealth. You can see, though, there that there's a, a measure of success in work that only comes if you obtain a, a high level of excellence and skill, and sometimes that, that success might include financial gain. But then not only that, Proverbs would also tell us that another means God often uses to, to bless us with worldly wealth is simply living beneath our means. Living beneath our means. Proverbs 21, 17 says, Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Of course, wine and oil are often portrayed very positively in the Bible and in Proverbs. They're they're gifts to be enjoyed and celebrated. They're signs of abundance. And yet, we see here, if, if one gives themselves to an unconstrained enjoyment of them, whatever wealth they do have will be fleeting. In other words, if if you live a lavish lifestyle, a lifestyle that spends too much money on too many luxuries, well, then you'll probably have too much month at the end of your money, as the saying goes. Don't expect to have worldly wealth for long, and this is rather challenging for us today. I mean, oftentimes it's just expected that if you get a raise at work, you get a new job where you have more income, that you're also going to Upgrade your lifestyle, get a new car, buy a new house, buy different kinds of clothes. 
And of course, I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. I'm not calling you sinful if you've ever done that. But Proverbs would say there's, there's wisdom in not changing your lifestyle. There's wisdom, there would be wisdom in even downgrading your lifestyle in an effort to better steward what the Lord has given you so that you can earn more, save more, give more by living beneath your means. And then Proverbs would also tell us to act with integrity in the getting of wealth. Proverbs 21.6 says that the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Right? If you acquire wealth through dishonest and immoral means, you should not expect to hold on to it for too long. Uh, you might think of the, the story of uh, Elizabeth Holmes. It illustrates this quite well. She started Theranos, right? It's a medical tech corporation that promised to revolutionize the medical industry as we know it through this new, highly advanced medical technology, but it was all a fraud. It was a lie. The technology never actually existed. It was never actually developed. It was an idea in her mind while she told investors all the while that it was in the works. And in 2014, she was considered the world's youngest self-made woman billionaire, the net worth of nearly $4.5 billion. And after the lie was exposed, it all came crashing down. Today, her net worth, net worth is zero dollars and she's heading to prison because the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor. Furthermore, in earning wealth, Proverbs would counsel us to avoid unnecessary debt and risks. Proverbs would call us to make wise and careful decisions with our wealth. Proverbs 21.5 says that the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Being hasty, being careless, taking unnecessary risks, trying to get rich quick through get-rich-quick schemes will often lead to poverty, it says. Related to that, controversially, Proverbs generally takes a rather low view of going into debt. Perhaps one of the, the best-known Proverbs about the subject is Proverbs 22.7, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. It doesn't call debt a sin per se. And I think common sense would tell us today that not all debt is the same, right? A mortgage on your home might be a good example of that. However, it, it also seems safe to say that our culture as a whole has a very unhealthy relationship with debt. It just came out earlier this month that Americans collectively have over a trillion dollars of credit card debt. And, and that, Proverbs would say, is enslaving. That means that millions and millions of Americans, some of them Christians, I'm sure, they're, they're forced to give money every month to unproductive interest rates instead of to their own necessities and families, instead of toward generosity to their neighbors in need or to the cause of the gospel, to missions and to churches and to mercies, mercy works. Many Christians are forced to devote much of their income toward something that doesn't benefit them or their families or the kingdom at all. It takes away wealth, takes away your ability to save all you can, to give all you can. And thus Proverbs would say that unnecessary debt and risk are detrimental to acquiring worldly wealth. It's the blessing of the Lord by which we're well provided for, but that provision ordinarily comes through these kinds of means, Proverbs would tell us, these kinds of instruments or devices of working hard, of living beneath our means, 
of being excellent in our work, acting with integrity, avoiding unnecessary risks. But in the end, we always remember that God is the sovereign one. He's the, distri- he's the distributor of wealth, even as he works through various means to provide, as we see here in wealth's devices. But then lastly, look with me at the delight of wealth. The delight of wealth. So far, we've only looked at the, the first half of our proverb. However, there is a second half. And the second half of our synthetic proverb here goes a bit further. It says this, he adds no sorrow with it. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. I gotta say, I thought about this a lot this past week. This, this is hard to understand. Maybe you can appreciate that. He adds no sorrow with it. It's hard because it's very obvious that there are some people in this world who have a lot of money, but who also have a lot of sorrow too. The rich suffer the same as anyone else. We, we all know this. Even more, money, even an abundance of money is no guarantee of happiness. In fact, I think it's safe to say that many people who indeed have an abundance of money actually experience many sorrows that are in some way related to their having an abundance of money. It was John D. Rockefeller who once said, I have made many millions, but none of them. They've brought me no happiness. W.H. Vanderbilt once said, the care of $2 million is enough to kill anyone. There's no pleasure in it. Millionaire John Jacob Astor is recorded saying, I'm the most miserable man on earth. Henry Ford, after his success, I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job. Andrew Carnegie, Carnegie, millionaires seldom smile. Right? Even... Even Solomon himself, the author of our proverb in Ecclesiastes 5, 10, and 12, will tell us, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Right? Human experience common sense, and the wisdom of God's word would tell us that riches in and of themselves can't bring a life without sorrow. So what does he mean here? Well, he seems to be expressing here that if perhaps if wealth is held with a certain kind of posture, if it's accepted and received with a certain kind of posture, it can be free from the kinds of sorrows normally associated with it. Now think about it. Oftentimes, the reason wealth increases sorrow in people's lives is because they're anxious over getting it and over keeping it, and that, that anxiety fills their life with sorrow. Or, or perhaps the reason wealth increases sorrow in people's life is because people sometimes feel guilty regarding the way they got it or how they're using it. If they got it somehow by some kind of dishonest or corrupt means or if they're using it in a way that's selfish and self-centered, that can increase sorrow, that can burden the conscience with guilt and shame and fear. Or, 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 or perhaps wealth sometimes increases sorrow in life because people overwork and underrest in order to give it or order to get it, rather. They give themselves to this kind of backbreaking toil that, that Proverbs 23, 4 warns us against, and that increases sorrow. 
Or, or maybe wealth increases sorrow in some people's lives because they're grieved at the thought of losing it. They're, they fear losing it. Or worse, they're tormented when they actually do lose it. You see, those are the kinds of sorrows people with much wealth can and often do experience in life. And perhaps you can see that those kinds of sorrows are experienced and come as a result of loving wealth and desiring it too much. Come as a result of worshiping wealth, right? It's because of the love of money, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, that people pierce themselves with many pangs. That's where the pain comes from. That's where the sorrow comes from, is the love of money. It was author and atheist David Foster Wallace who once brilliantly reflected on this himself. He was giving a college commencement speech and he told his, his listeners about the dangers of worshiping created things. This is what he said. He said, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will Need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. In other words, what he's exposing here is that one of the main reasons wealth and other created things increase sorrow in our lives is because we love it and desire it too much and we worship it. When in all reality, created things like money, And wealth and material goods are far too fragile and far too limited to be able to hold up under the weight of such honor. And they're far too weak to be able to hold us up as their worshipers. Worship money and things, he says, and they'll eat you alive. It will increase your sorrow. It will make you anxious and afraid and overworked and underrested and corrupt and bothered in your conscience. But the wisdom of Proverbs would spare us that sorrow by calling us to a different sort of posture and approach to wealth. Remember the overall context of the book of Proverbs and where it tells us that wisdom begins. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1, 7, 9, 10 would tell us. Remember what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is when the Lord is the most central, the most preeminent, most important, most glorious, most treasured, most revered thing in your life. When the Lord is the sun of the solar system of your life and all of your life and everything in it revolves around him and his glory and his pleasure. In other words, when the fear of the Lord is worshiping him and him alone and him rightly and him above all, and that alone will give you the kind of heart and posture Solomon is talking about here. Because think about it, if you worship your wealth and money and material things, you'll be worshiping a God who can never love you back. You'll be worshiping a God that you'll have to sacrifice yourself for and go to the mat for in order to get it and keep it and defend it and earn it. 
You'll be worshiping a God that is fickle and fleeting and that you very well might eventually lose. You very well will lose it one day. But if you worship the Lord, the the one true God, then you worship a God who absolutely, infinitely, lastingly, eternally loves you and treasures you and you can rest assured of that. Because he's shown you by coming and taking on flesh and going to a cross in order to have you. The Lord Jesus has shown you that he loves you, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, and that he gave himself for you. Riches will never love you. But the Lord Jesus does. If you worship him instead of worshiping, instead of worshiping a God that you constantly have to sacrifice for and go to the mat for, then you worship a God who sacrificed himself and went to the mat for you. If you worship him, you don't worship a fickle, fleeting God that you constantly have to defend and try and keep and earn. And You worship a God who is risen and ascended and glorified and indestructible, who will live forevermore, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and who promised to never leave you or forsake you. And perhaps you can see what kind of difference that would make in your approach to wealth and life. If that kind of God is ultimate to you and central to you, if in your heart and in your eyes, he's the glorious one, he's the sovereign one, he's the treasured one, then as long as you have him, which you always will, then you can be satisfied no matter what comes, whether abundance or lack, poverty or wealth, riches or dearth, as long as you have him, you can be satisfied and contented and at rest. And if the blessing of riches do come from the hand of God, You can enjoy them as the limited gift that they are and that without sorrow because they're not ultimate to you. You're not anxious over losing them. You're not sinning in order to gain them. You're not guilty in order to keep them. You're all the while fearing him saying whether wealth, whether I gain wealth or don't gain it is up to you. My lot is in your hands. I can be at rest and then you can enjoy the real ultimate delight and the wealth and riches and glory of knowing him and having him and he will add no sorrow with it. Next Sunday, we'll return to the subject where we're going to consider the deficiencies, the dangers, the duties of wealth. But for now, let's conclude in prayer before we approach the table. Pray with me. Father, would you help us now because we believe, but we we need you to help our unbelief. We know that that worldly riches are, are good, but they so easily capture and grasp our hearts. And so would you help us now to, to see that you are so much better? Would you help us to see this as we come to the table and remember the the sacrifice that our Lord Jesus has made for us? Would you help us to see this as we come to the table and, and look ahead to the glorious riches that we have to look forward to in the world to come? Help us to see in that that while riches are a blessing now, they don't even compare to the blessing that we will have then. So help us to steward them well, what you give us 
well for your glory in this life and help us to always use them to invest in the age to come. And help us, Lord, to enjoy what you give us, to give thanks for it, and to remember that you are better than all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.